Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Welcome back. It's been a while. It has been a while. What happened to the summer? We both got really busy. I know. I don't know what happened. Uh, COVID, monkeypox, ICAP, who knows what else. Going back to school, all those Vacations. things probably. Yeah, you had to fit those in too, right? Yeah. You have to. Summertime. Yeah, you got to get a break. If you don't, you, 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 you'd have to figure out a way to do it. It's true. Where did you go on vacation? We just went to Lake of the Ozarks. That's always a fun time. Yeah, it was good. It was good. How about you? I took my three kids on a week-long road trip to the Grand Canyon. You drove to the Grand Canyon? Drove to the Grand Canyon. Yep. Did you have any time there? Did you actually drive there, look at it, and then turn around and drive right back? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seems pretty far. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was like 3,000 miles total round trip with the kids in the car. I did the the little trip meter in my car. We spent 60 hours in the car. A lot of time. That's a, that's a lot of time in a car. But the kids did really well. Um, we spent like two nights at each location. So we went to Rocky Mountain National Park. We went to Moab, Utah. We went to the Grand Canyon. Um, and then on the way back, we stopped in Durango, Colorado. And then the last day was our long drive home. Wow. Sounds yeah. like a great trip. It was fun. <laughs> good good and now we're back yes and what are we talking about today so today we are going to talk about immunizations because august is national immunization awareness month so we have a couple of guests on the show today that have been on in the past so they should not be strangers to anybody we have got dr trevor van schoenefeld and dr alice sato awesome Thanks, Trevor and Alice, for joining us. Sure. Great to be here. One of my favorite topics. So absolutely, thank you. Good. Yeah, well, good. yeah we're glad you're here to share some of your knowledge with everybody. I mean, obviously now, um, you know, for the last, you know, couple of years almost now, uh, immunizations have been on kind of lots of talking points all over the place with COVID. But obviously, there's a lot more uh, involved than just COVID vaccines, right? So hopefully, we'll dive into some of that and uh, and learn a little bit about this. But in general, kind of when we talk about immunization, what's the goal? Why do you know? Why do we give immunizations? What's the what's the point of them? Alice, you can take that one. So I'm going to say one of the main reasons I got interested in pediatrics was vaccines, because preventing disease is better than treating disease, right? And so uh, I always tell pediatricians and family practice docs and other practitioners who get kids vaccinated and adults vaccinated that they are doing more than I will ever achieve in my career in terms of fighting disease and death because vaccines prevent the disease. They don't always prevent infection, which is an important point, but they prevent or reduce the severity of disease. 
and we've known this for a long time with many different vaccines. Uh, they are different from each other. They work a little differently. The immunity to each organism can be a little bit different, but that is the overarching goal is to cut down on disease, morbidity, mortality, and if possible, transmission. Uh, I'd say here, here to that, man, if you if you look at uh, the things we've done in the last few hundred years to uh, prolong people's lives, right? Because three to 400 years ago, the average lifespan was about 30 years. Um, and that was in the 1700s. And what have we done to prolong people's lives? Well, it's not been nutrition, although it helped a little. It's not been cardiovascular care, oncology. Uh, it's been vaccines preventing disease, particularly preventing disease in children, where, you know, uh, you know, infant mortality rates were extraordinary, where infant mortality is negligible now. I mean, that's the thing. If you look at what's really prolonged lives in the last couple hundred years from in the 30s up into the 80s, it's been vaccines, it's been sanitation, and it's been antibiotics. Those have been the three. And the big two really were vaccines and sanitation. I, I would definitely put indoor plumbing at the top of the list in terms <laughs> of hand washing and indoor plumbing, getting your poop out of your food supply. And, uh, but vaccines is definitely an excellent complement to those things. Yeah, sanitation was huge, right? So Alice, you mentioned a few things. You mentioned prevention. So there are some diseases that we can prevent with vaccination. Um, some disease that we've eradicated that, you know, we can talk a little bit about uh, here soon too. And then others we mitigate, right? So one of the, I think one of the frustrating things for people, at least in the last you know year and a half has been, well, I've gotten COVID vaccines, but I'm still getting COVID. So why is that still important that people are vaccinated? Trevor? Important that people get vaccinated because, you know, prevents the severe disease, right? So if you Remember to our pre-vaccine days, nobody wants to remember those days when we're all sitting in our homes and not going anywhere. You know, if you went up to our ICU, it was filled with people dying from COVID. And why were they dying from COVID? Well, they had no immunity. They'd never been exposed to it. It was severe disease in some people, particularly those with risk factors for, for bad disease. And what, why, if you went up to our ICU now, is it not full of people with COVID, even though the case rates are not that much lower than they were back then. The reason is immunity. And there's two ways to get immunity. You can get the disease and sort of roll the dice and maybe you get really sick and die, maybe you don't. That is a way to achieve immunity. It's not the way I would choose to achieve immunity, <laughs> sort of rolling the dice. Or you can get vaccinated, which provides the immunity to disease and mitigates a lot of those severe effects because it produces the type of immunity that avoids the severe disease in most patients who have intact immune systems. There's always caveats whenever we talk about vaccines, but I think that's one of the key things. Um, we had this initial hope that, right, COVID vaccines would prevent disease, but the viruses mutate too quickly. And so uh, like Alice talked about, you know, some of the viruses can cause infection without causing severe disease. And that's really what we are able to achieve with COVID vaccine is, uh, even when people get it, they don't end up in the hospital, they don't end up in later, and they don't usually die from their infection, as opposed to our, our previous uh, period when we didn't have vaccines. So when they started making all those lovely graphs comparing 
the hospitalization rates and ICU admissions between vaccinated and unvaccinated, and you saw that very large gap, there's still a large gap between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Briefly in this January with Omicron, those lines were closer together, but there has always been space between those two lines that people who are vaccinated, right? And that's including people who've had prior infections in both groups. Um, there's still a gap between those two. And uh, my assumption was that we had started drawing those graphs based on what we knew about flu vaccine. So that has been a well-known effect in flu vaccination uh, going back a ways. And it's even been published in Pediatrics, which is the journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, looking at children admitted to the hospital with influenza infection. So even if they got infected, if they had been vaccinated, they had a lower risk of needing ICU care and a lower risk of death. Now that currently sounds very familiar to everybody, but this was published you know, several years back saying, look, everybody tends to talk trash about the flu vaccine, um, but it really is protecting against severe disease and death, even if you do get infected. So being vaccinated is very important. And I'm trying to keep it off being 100% about COVID today. <laughs> yeah, we will get into other things too. So no, no worries, no worries. Um, one thing that you mentioned, uh, Trevor, was you know you had two ways of getting immunity. You know, either could get the disease or you could get vaccinated. You know, and so some some of the things that are bannered around is that natural immunity is better. So does that mean that va vaccination produces unnatural immunity? I don't understand the point oh, of that yeah, comment. Yeah. It, there's nothing unnatural about the vaccination-induced immunity, right? It's the same immune cells, the same antibodies, the same immune. You get exposed to the viral proteins one way or another. You can either have billions of virus replicating in all the cells all over your body, your respiratory tract, all over the place, which is natural infection, or you can have a few cells produce a bunch of a specific viral protein, only one, as opposed to lots of different ones that your immune system then reacts to, and that's immunization. And so both of them go through the same cycle of your cells recognizing it, creating antibodies, creating uh, lymphocytes that attack the virus and can kill the cells that are infected. They both work the same. Um, they both use the same system. There's nothing unnatural about vaccine-induced immunity. It just avoids all the terrible like side effects of having an actual disease. I think I heard, it was, I think it was Dr. Lawler said that we have this, this marketing issue when we talk about this, that instead of calling it natural immunity, we should call it disease-induced immunity. So it's not that, as confusing. That's a great way to put it. I like that term. I'll have to start using that, disease-induced immunity. That's what we it should, is. Yeah, you know, we should make posters with some horrible creature like they're causing it rather than, you know, <laughs> than the vaccine being like a smiley, happy face or something, yeah. you know, because it, it isn't, uh, you know, it goes back to the days when they used to have, you know, chicken pox parties, right? I mean, you know, or, or whatever, so that people would get it, so they'd be immune, so they'd get, it, you know, their usual childhood illnesses, what we used to consider usual childhood illnesses. I'm sure Alice will have some comment about those, that a lot of those have become vaccine preventable illnesses now, right? Sure. Uh, so when you induce immunity in the setting of infection, 
those other 27 or so proteins that are present in SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID, uh, some of those are actually interfering with the ability of the immune system to make a good immune response. We see this in a lot of other viruses like the herpes viruses and such where uh, they're actually, you know, trying to not have you make a great immune response, right? So if you isolate just that spike protein in a vaccine, then the chances are that you could get a better response to that protein because there's not interference by the other viral proteins in that process. Yeah. So I mean, that, that's especially yeah, true with measles, right? I mean, measles induces some immune amnesia. I mean, it basically can knock out your immune system for a while. So it's a heck of a lot better to be immunized against measles than to get measles for lots of reasons. But yeah, I think it was Michael Mina's paper that has this amazing graphic that shows all the different uh, lineages of cells in your immune system. And with acute measles infections, the B cells, the antibody producing cells vanish yep. and, um, and they take a while to recover. And if you look epidemiologically, what you see after measles is an increase in all cause mortality for three years after measles goes through. And it's probably because you've wiped out that ability to make antibodies to lots of different things so that you were at risk of not just, you know, maybe you wouldn't get measles again, although you may or may not have made the best response to it. But when flu comes around next year, you're behind the curve. The streptococcus pneumoniae and the homophilus influenza in your nose, you, you don't have as good immunity too. And so it's really, really not great to get measles if only for the reason that you are now at greater risk for all the other infections. Agreed. Agreed. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. So Rick was just talking about the chicken pox parties. I'm probably on the tail end of that generation. Um, I had chicken pox when I was a kid, but it seems like that vaccine campaign for varicella zoster has been very successful over the years. Um, what are some other really successful vaccine campaigns that have either eradicated or gotten really close to eradicating a disease? Alice, do you want to take this one? This seems right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the most famous disease, right, the one that we eradicated was smallpox. Uh, and smallpox has been a little bit more on people's minds lately uh, because monkeypox is very closely related. So if you are old like me, I have a scar on my arm from my smallpox vaccine. So uh, that has been a really interesting um history to revisit because that vaccination program, so that used a live vaccine. That's not the one that's um, being used right now, uh, but it was Drivax, I believe, uh, but it was a live vaccinia, um, a related virus to cause immunity. And so uh, you would get a lesion with a scab that would fall off eventually. Um, and you could be at risk for disseminated disease with that because it was a live replicating whatever you want to call an active virus in, uh, vaccine. Um, and over time, because of this worldwide effort to get rid of this disease, because millions of people would die from this disease every year, it was a really horrible disease. Uh, 
if you've ever had chicken pox and had a bunch of lesions, these are more dense nod nodular lesions, painful, disfiguring, um, horrible, <laughs> really a, a terrible disease, and also had other complications like pneumonia and encephalitis and all those. Um, that program was also where we really saw the use of ring vaccination. So as it became less and less common, they uh, would find a case and then vaccinate everyone around them. So that may sound familiar also, where you try and get make sure all of the contacts are definitely vaccinated um, and surround that. And that's also been used for Ebola vaccination, right? This is a, a strategy that works really well. When you have few cases, you can really focus efforts around that person if it's the kind of vaccine that you can give as post-exposure prophylaxis, which works uh, in this case. So um, they did that and then, you know, they verified, okay, we haven't seen any cases this year. And so they finally called it and said, yes, it's been eliminated, right? Uh, Rinderpest is an animal disease um, that was uh, vaccine eradicated. But other diseases, we have been working towards elimination. I don't know if you wanted to get into polio today, but uh, <laughs> polio, we have certainly eliminated um, from many places, um, but we still have to do surveillance and vaccination. And that's a complicated story because of the combination of vaccines that are used. Um, but we don't have congenital rubella syndrome in this country, right, or in um, you know, in most places, there isn't congenital rubella because people are vaccinated against it. But there have been cases where incomplete vaccination in a population, you see the recurrence of congenital rubella syndrome, which can cause eye and heart defects in babies um, born to mothers with infection, you know, in the earlier parts of pregnancy. So uh, many campaigns will work towards elimination of a disease uh, in a population, even if, uh, like in the case of polio, you can still have circulating virus, but not disease. Very interesting. So if we want to talk about polio. There have been some cases that have popped up recently, right? Absolutely. So uh, besides the one case in New York, um, one clinical case, of acute plasmyelitis, there's evidence for circulation of the virus by looking at the wastewater in New York, which means that there are conservatively hundreds of people who are infected, but not symptomatic, and that the virus is circulating. And that has been seen in the UK and in Israel. Uh, we have not traditionally monitored wastewater in this country for polio, which is an enterovirus but other places have. We had been very much working towards polio eradication around the world, but that is really a little bit complicated. So uh, this goes back to involves my elementary school though. So it's a little exciting for me. So um, there, were, there are two major types of vaccines for polio, right? IPV and OPV. IPV is inactivated polio vaccine, so that's killed or dead, um, versus oral polio, which is live or replicating vaccine. Uh, and so uh, one of the major differences that has affected how we use it around the world is that IPV is a shot. 
So you have to have a syringe, a needle, ideally a Band-Aid <laughs> and an alcohol prep pad, but someone who knows how to give that draw up into a syringe and give that vaccine. Whereas oral polio vaccine, uh, when we used to give it, when I was in residency, right, it was just a few drops um, in the mouth um, or on a sugar cube, people may remember. Uh, and that, because it's replicating, uh, works well. And you don't need any special training to put a few drops in a child's mouth. So that is easier to give out in a mass vaccination program because you don't need trained people. You just really need the vaccine itself and someone who can make sure the child gets it in their mouth. The problem with the oral polio vaccine is that it's rare, but it can undergo mutation even during uh, a cycle in one person where, um, you know, in errors in replication, it can revert to something more pathogenic. And that's particularly too, true of strain two viruses in the vaccine. And that's what we've been seeing. Uh, so those can revert to being, to having the potential to cause invasive disease. Nobody really cares if you have this virus replicating in your gut because it really isn't doing anything, but if it invades and it gets to your spinal cord, you can see what people think of as polio, which is where you see um, paralysis, like a limb paralysis, um, but it can also cause an encephalitis. Both of those are rare in people who are infected and not immune. So one in 200 for paralysis, but you can have you know other complications and maybe eight out of 200 people. But most people won't have any disease. But that's still a very large number. <laughs> One of the things we've learned is that a small percentage of a large number can still be a very large number. So that can be a very large number. Uh, so what we went to in the US, because it got to the point where we had gotten rid of it, um, that the only cases of polio disease we had was due to vaccination. So we had gone to two shots followed by two oral vaccines. And then around, I believe 2000, we went to just shots. So it's harder, it's more resource intensive, it's expensive, more expensive to do that, but it doesn't have the problem of having virus that can revert existing. However, it also doesn't give you as good gut immunity, which means people who are vaccinated can have asymptomatic virus, either wild type or vaccine derived in their gut and pass it around and never know because it doesn't really keep you from having an infection in your gut. It just prevents there being invasion into your nervous system. Sorry, prevents you from, from getting invasion into your nervous system. And so you don't get disease. So that's like the downside of using the oral vaccine. The reason I said it involves my elementary school, because before I went there in the <laughs> 50s, um, they did the original trials of IPV. They started at Franklin Sherman Elementary School. Cool. Where is that? Uh, it's in Northern Virginia outside D.C. Oh, neat. In McLean, Virginia. Hmm. 
they had agreed to that they would do it for any families who wanted to have their children in that trial. So that was the the beginning of that trial. Yeah. So I mean, I think uh, all that information is is amazing. And so you you go back and you're a parent in the 1950s. You know, it's the summer in the 1950s before there's any of these vaccines. And you know, you're looking for cases in your community, right? And they would, you know, shut down the pools and do all kinds of stuff. And then these vaccines become available, and so people are just lining up to get immunized, right? Um, and so it was it was you know magical. It was, you know, incredible that that they could do this. 2019, we have COVID. 2020-ish, you know, so, you know, a, a 2021, a vaccine becomes available, and we have half the people not want it. What the heck's going on? Yeah, that's a very unfortunate phenomena, right? So there's been a real rise in, um, I think, people who are opposed to vaccines. And there are a variety of reasons people cite for these, uh, some of which are debunked research, uh, concerns about the products being unsafe. Uh, and so there are a variety of reasons people cite. But it's interesting when you go and you try to convince people to take vaccines, um, it, it's very hard to convince them because it turns out strongly held misbeliefs are actually the most difficult uh, misbeliefs to correct. People who say, I don't know, or I have questions uh, about vaccines, uh, providing them with more information could usually change their mind. Um, but there's a significant portion of the people um, who based on, and there's a lot of different phenomena that caused this, uh, particularly spreading of misinformation um, that have led to people with strongly held misbeliefs that are not based in any sort of objective reality. Um, uh, but we live in a world where, um, I don't know, we live in a world where objective reality seems to be stepping farther and farther away from people. Um, and I think part of the other problem was there was a huge credibility issue at the beginning of the pandemic where um, uh, the authorities sort of had kept changing what they were saying, mostly because everything kept changing, which because we didn't, you know, we were sort of learning on the fly. And so I think some people lost some trust. Um, but I, I think there just are a variety of camps out there um, some of them are just concerned, which is, you know, we can sort of work through with information, but others just have strongly held misbeliefs um, that, uh, that no amount of logic, communication, discussion, information is going to overcome because some of them just aren't based in reality. Some of them have misperceptions that are correctable. And so it's difficult because you want to spend time correcting those who have misunderstandings or have been informed incorrectly. Um, but there are many, anyway, what's good, there's many things contributing to this. I mean, the list of things that have led to this is long. Um, but it's not terribly surprising to me that it occurred. Well, I think this goes back far before COVID. There was Correct me if I'm wrong. There was a, a study that was incorrectly published relating vaccines to autism. Yeah, it's 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 since been retracted. It was right. done unethically. 
Um, and so, you know, the literature uh, linking vaccines to autism is nil. It just doesn't, it, there's none, it doesn't exist. Um, but that doesn't stop the people from saying it exists, right? We live in a world where anyone can say whatever information they want and they have a great system for disseminating it. Um, and so that, that has been completely removed from the literature. Um, but because again, we live in a society where there's much conspiracies and you know everything now is a conspiracy to prevent correct information from getting out. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to overcome some of those. Uh, once the thoughts get out there and sort of get entrenched in certain groups. Um, and, and that's the thing, when you go back and look at this, I think Facebook did a study on this and most vaccine misinformation came from 70 individuals. Mm -hmm. It was like some humongous amount um, came from just 70 individuals, but it, the, the mechanisms we have now amplify that information. And before you'd have to print a pamphlet and get people to watch a video. Now anyone can find it anywhere with just a simple Google search. I'm gonna say as an old pediatrician, it's been a few decades since that paper was published. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so uh, this has been a topic that became worse with that paper, but even existed before that. And the problem is people know exactly when someone got vaccinated because that's very salient. You know the date, you have it written down, you know when that happened. But the other thing that happens if you're looking for uh, developmental differences in children is that it's going to be picked up at their well child care visits that occur over that first the first couple years of life. And so what people think of as modifiable or avoidable, um, as they remember the day that it happened and the baby was fussy after they got the shot, uh, is going to be something they remember happening around that time. And, you know, the evidence suggests that um, autism or neuroatypical people really that's, you know, <laughs> that's a uh, developmental thing, right? Their differences even before birth and it's not all bad. Um, and it's, but it's going to be discussed and noticed if you are coming to your well child visits in your first couple years of life. Right. So it is easy for people to tie those things together, whether or not they're related. Yeah, it's, it's called the, right. It's called the, recall bias. Right. They exactly. fixate it to a time point. Sorry if that's what you're going to say, Rick, but it's you're recall right. bias. They fixate it right to a specific time and point that they can remember. It's like uh, I got diarrhea last night I had Popeyes. Well, it must be the Popeyes. Well, the incubation period of most enteric illnesses is at least 40, 72 hours. So it wasn't the Popeyes last night. It was whatever you ate two to three nights ago, but you remember Popeyes from last night. Not to besmirch Popeyes or blame them for any illness. <laughs> That's no, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying it was not Popeyes, so I don't think they'll get sick, so. Exactly right. Well, I think it gets worse. It It's compounded when you have parents of sick kids right they're very passionate about what's going on with their kids and so it just kind of builds on itself and with the with the age of social media we're in right now it's so easy to hit the share button and not even read an article right you see a, a nice headline and you just share it 
everything's a headline now. I don't think it everything is. is like a bullet point. I mean, it's like, you know, even the, the articles on the news uh, uh, sites or if they're longer than like takes you longer than 60 seconds to read it, I don't think anybody's going to look at it anymore. Yep. So you had mentioned, Sarah, um, chicken pox as successful, which is kind of interesting to those of us old enough to remember before chicken pox vaccine, uh, which also came out around 96 Ish. or 98, somewhere yeah. around there. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was this whole discussion about why does anyone need vaccination against chicken pox because everyone's had it and we all survived it. So therefore it can't be too bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, if someone got bad encephalitis or pneumonia with it, then, you know, they probably had a pre-existing condition. Some of this may sound familiar. Uh, or if they got um, necrotizing fasciitis or something, then, you know, well, maybe it was something that happened. And, you know, so you wanted your kid to get it when they were young, because then it wasn't a big deal, right, until you get shingles later. But uh, uh I think probably because there was a lot of necrotizing fasciitis around the time the vaccine came out in this country that it became more apparent to people that that was a time at which you were at more risk of getting a bacterial super infection of deep lesions you already had. And that probably um, helped. The fact that it had been, there had been a chickenpox vaccine used, for example, in Japan already for 10 or 20 years before it rolled out here People are like, well, that's not long enough data, right? So what? there's never enough data, it's never long enough term. Uh, but originally uh, it wasn't clear whether that vaccine was going to succeed or not in being advised. And then with the combination product with MMR plus varicella uh, for the first dose, there's maybe a slightly higher risk of febrile seizures, which are benign things that are common in small children where they will have a brief seizure with the onset of fever. But because it was seen with those, most practices, you know, it's recommended to give those as two separate shots and not a combined shot for that first shot. And again, you know, febrile seizures, they are very dramatic. And if you don't know what they are, they can be super scary, <laughs> but you know, they don't cause any harm and they're very common in small children in response to fever from all sorts of things. But if it happens after your child got a shot, you feel much more strongly about it because you feel like something happened that you allowed to happen and then your child had this thing happen, right? So, <laughs> yeah, if they got it because they got RSV from being at daycare, you're not going to feel like it was something you should have prevented. So tricky. That is tricky. So you mentioned that you can have the series of shots. So I know there are quite a few vaccinations where we have a whole series you have to go through. Um, can you talk a little bit about why we have to do that? So this is the whole thing where uh, I think in the popular imagination, all vaccines are the same. They're just for different things. <laughs> and they're not, right? So there are a lot of differences between different vaccines and how they work. So if I got one measles shot, I'm probably pretty good. We actually give two MMRs, not because it isn't usually enough with one, because that is a live viral vaccine, all of the components of it. But as it turns out, 
Um, in order for that vaccine to work, it has to be able to replicate. So if you give it to babies early in life um, who have a lot of antibody around that they got from their mother through the placenta, or if I give you um, IVIG, I, I give you some antibody product that gives you antibodies from someone else, then it's not that it's dangerous, it's that the vaccine won't work because the vaccine never gets to replicate because you already have too many antibodies. So what, uh, so what we figured out was that some people, and we didn't know who, it just didn't get a chance to work right. So giving that second dose caught up on the people who it didn't happen to work well in at the time because they probably still had a lot of antibodies from their mother. So uh, it's really one shot and then a second one to make sure that it had a chance the first time, right? Whereas, right, we talked about injectable polio vaccines, which is, you know, we give four doses of that. Or if you get a hepatitis B vaccine, we give you three doses. And that's because that's not replicating. And so like hepatitis B is just one surface antibody think spike, right? It's very similar to what the Novavax vaccine mm -hmm. is that's now available for COVID, which is it's just one protein from the outside of the virus, right? And maybe plus or minus an adjuvant, depending on how it's made. Um, but that protein gets taken up by antigen presenting cells. It gets presented, you get, you start making antibodies and like that, but it doesn't hang around. It doesn't make more of itself. It's just one and done. And so you start to make antibodies and responses, but without getting an additional dose that your baseline level of antibodies that you have that keep you protected over a long period of time isn't really enough. So we give a couple of doses uh, and over time that kind of sets you up. And the thing about boosters that gets me, I mean, besides the fact that, so, uh, if you think about tetanus, everyone's very comfortable with getting another tetanus shot because we understand at some level that you're going to need another one of those shots just to tank you up and get your level back up, right? And it doesn't mean that that original series didn't work, but over time, your immune system's like, well, that doesn't seem to be a big threat and you don't have as many antibodies around. And so every once in a while, we go in and say, hey, remember this? Let's make some more antibodies to that. And that keeps you safer. So we regularly get boosted for tetanus, right? And if you have a high-risk exposure, we might boost you a little bit sooner. But it doesn't mean that it's not a great vaccine that does what it's supposed to do. It's just to be protected from the disease over time. Hopefully your lifetime is decades and decades, right? So that shot you got when you were two may not hold out. But if you had a live viral vaccine, it's like having had an infection. And so that might last longer. But sometimes we still think about getting boosted. So if you were in a country with lots and lots and lots of polio virus circulating, we would say you probably need a booster, right? Or if you were someone who takes care of patients with polio or work in a lab with polio virus, then we would say you should get a booster. But most of us walking around here, right? There's not a ton of virus circulating. We probably don't need a booster ever because we're gonna be good enough um, with our immune system kind of you know, saying, oh, hey, look, there's something in my gut that will get a good response 
and we won't have a lot of exposure and we won't get disease. Yeah, very good. Um, so you, know, you think about it and, and I think you brought up a good point, uh, you know, that the vaccines aren't all the same. It's not like you cookbook it, that you can just put something in there against something and then you voila, you have a vaccine, right? So, you know, they've been working on things like HIV vaccines and uh, herpes virus vaccines for some time. And I don't want to necessarily get into the details of this, but I think people might sit around and think, well, why the heck hasn't that happened yet, right? It's to have vaccines against other things. Why can't we just make a vaccine against this? It should be easy. I mean, Jenner did it with just cowpox droppings and, and, and you know, and putting it under, under people's skin. So why doesn't that work with everything? So I tend to say that I have a useless PhD in immunology because it's from the last century. <laughs> but I did work on HIV. And uh, my thesis advisor, Dave Weiner, uh, does a lot of DNA vaccine work. Uh, and one of the things was trying to figure out how to make an HIV vaccine, which it is not for lack of trying that people have tried to make a vaccine against it. But it turns out that the surface protein of HIV, GP120, if it's HIV1, right, and GP41, which is the spike that that ball of GP120 sits on, is probably one of the most glycosylated or sugar-coated proteins there is. And so that makes this cloud of sugars around the protein, and it makes it very hard to make an antibody response that is helpful in terms of preventing infection. So if you think about how we have historically diagnosed your HIV is that we have looked to see if you have antibodies. So you definitely make antibodies to HIV, but it doesn't prevent it from being infectious enough, right? So that has been very difficult. There was a trial using a form of GP120 that didn't really work. People have tried adding parts of other parts of the virus. It's, it's a very thorny problem. It is not because people didn't care about this disease. It's because it is very difficult to make. Whereas for coronaviruses, right? People were working very hard on coronaviruses, um, particularly after SARS-1, I guess we call it now, SARS happened in 2002 to 2003. And then MERS-CoV, which is the Middle East Respiratory Virus uh, Syndrome, uh, and other coronaviruses. And we knew that there are all these animal coronaviruses that can jump to humans. And so lots of people had spent lots of time thinking about how do you make a vaccine against coronaviruses? Um, and so we knew that Spike was gonna be a good bet as the target based on these other viruses. And so that was why people just went straight to that. It wasn't just, I mean, it was lucky in the sense that it worked, but it was based on lots of research and people thinking about how to make vaccines against these diseases. And we knew Spike was a really good place to target and that, you know, it would give us something that worked. But immunology is really complicated. And I don't claim to be a current immunologist by any means, but there are a bunch of infections where we don't maintain enough antibodies and we don't maintain good enough responses to stay immune for long periods of time, which is why these cold viruses and the other, you know, the endemic coronaviruses, the other four that travel around all the time, people get them all the time, all the yeah. time. And they circulate all the time and people get them again and again. 
And so to manipulate, you know, to make something that's going to work for longer is really, really tricky. And, you know, unfortunately, we have not solved that tricky problem, right? And it's different than because these viruses mutate all the time, we can develop new variants or strains or serotypes or whatever you want to call it. We, we are using the term variants for COVID. But viruses that mutate a lot, it's much harder to keep up with than viruses like DNA viruses that don't change very much at all ever. And so your target is changing. And so that makes it harder to have something that's always going to work. Yeah, I mean, we have to keep in mind that the these viruses or bacteria, whatever it is that we're trying to protect against, they're, they're not to humanize them, but their role in the world is to in, do things that make them replicating and that's causing infections, right? So they beget more of whatever they are. Um, so you get something like a herpes virus that has a sanctuary, even if it's a DNA virus. I mean, it, it, we have antibodies against it, right? That's how we check for to tell that you're infected, but it can, it can hide, um, you know, and so uh, these things have developed means of getting around our immune system so that they can continue to exist not to get again not to humanize them but um otherwise they would just go away <laughs> oh evolution's all about exploiting whatever niche is available to you at the time right which is why you know in science fiction movies where they're like oh this is what humans evolve into in ten thousand years what under what circumstances and like what chain of events because there's no direction to evolution it's just whatever helps you make more of yourself and is successful at that point in time so different strategies, right? That's how you get separation of, you know, Darwin finches and you get exploitation of different niches and sometimes they vanish and then you didn't succeed, right? And some mutations don't help you and then that tends to disappear. So it's whatever is working at that point in time under those circumstances with those available resources. So we can't say, oh, well, it's absolutely going to become more or less pathogenic or, right? It's just whatever is, successful. So that is how evolution is. Very true. Okay. Very true. Hey, Trevor, so we've talked a little bit about some childhood vaccines. Um, adults, um, any uh, anything coming up that they need to know as far as vaccines? It's getting to be, you know, influenza time. Maybe there's a COVID variant vaccine coming out here in the coming couple of months. There's been some changes with pneumonia vaccines, uh, kind of an update on any of those. Yeah, so, I mean, we are coming up on flu vaccine season. I know a lot of places already have them. Uh, the recommendation is gonna be to get them, right? That's the most effective way we have at preventing influenza. What Certainly about timing? What, when so, should you get that? Places are already uh, advertising now and it's August. It's like 90 degrees outside. It seems kind of a little counterintuitive to get a flu vaccine right now. This is something we argue about all the time. Uh, the best time to get one is so you don't miss getting one. And so if you're going to miss it later, better to get it now. Uh, you know, the flu season generally hits anywhere from November to February, although I would not want to predict it this year because it's been really wacky. It was actually, we actually did have a flu season last year, although it was pretty late in the year and kind of ran off into the spring. Um, and so it does wane a bit after four to six months. And so I, my own personal approach is to get one in October. Um, 
that's going to generally be before the flu season, but it's better to get one than to not get one is what I tell my patients. And so if it's September and you're not coming back to the doctor and you're not going to go, there, I'll give you a flu vaccine now. So you get one, so you get one. Because like we talked about, even if it doesn't prevent influenza, which some years is better than others, it is going to mitigate severe disease. And we have that data in elderly patients as well and people with comorbidities. So flu vaccine is coming. I hear a COVID booster is coming. I think uh, Pfizer just submitted their bivalent vaccine for FDA UA. I expect that will get approved. And so this fall we'll be getting both uh, COVID and flu boosters, maybe at the same time, maybe not at the same time, generally at the same time is okay. That will be active against the two strains that are circulating the most right now. Um, with COVID, it's hard to predict what will happen six weeks from now. But uh, so that's something that is probably going to be coming. I wouldn't want to say 100% until it gets approved, but very likely to be coming sometime here soon. And then the other big change is actually the approval of two conjugate pneumococcal vaccines that cover many more strains. There's a PCV15 and a PCV20. And the CDC came out with some new recommendations. Um, it, these are so we, we, we have two flu vaccines. We have this conjugate vaccine for pneumococcus. It works pretty well against pneumococcus. And then we have this polysaccharide-based vaccine that covers more strains that we've given to adults for a long time, but just doesn't work as well. And we've been giving the conjugate one to the kids for a long time. And it turns out actually we vaccinate kids. It does a really good job of preventing disease in adults. And so that's been a great strategy for preventing pneumococcal disease in adults. Um, but these new uh, these new conjugate vaccines have 15 or 20 strains covered. They're not 23, but 15 and 20 is pretty good. And so the new recommendation is pretty much, uh, they've actually simplified the recommendations. They used to have all these sort of complicated, if you have these problems, you gave this vaccine. If you had these problems, you give this one and then that one, and then another booster of that one later, and another booster later. And when you get six five, you do some other stuff. It's much simpler now. And that if you give a 20, you're kind of done if you give the conjugate 20. If you give the 15, you still need to give the 23 because there are eight strains not contained in that 15. But then again, you're, you're pretty much done um, because there's not a recommendation yet to boost. Now that may come someday, we'll see. We got to give time to see what happens with pneumococcal uh, disease and what strains are, are circulating. We have seen some changes as we vaccinated. But that's a big change is now what we've moved to at our institution is basically going to all PCV20, uh, where that's replaced all of our adult vaccine. And so if you're immunocompromised, if you smoke, if you have asthma, if you're over 65 and you haven't had a 20, we're giving you a 20. And it makes life simple, not just for the patients, but also for the physicians. What about flu vaccine? Uh you know, there's different, uh, you know, it's trivalent, quadrivalent, high dose. I, I, there was a, some recent changes as far as recommendations on that as well. Yeah, so uh, changes have been, it really would recommend getting quadrivalent. To the, so there's a couple of things. The quadrivalent has two A's and two B's. Um, and is, you know, as you guys know, is a little bit of a guess as to what's going to hit. Um, and so it gets, we have to predict it a little earlier. Uh, what's come out is a variety of new formulations. Uh, we've grown influenza vaccine in eggs for many years. It's kind of a slow process, I'm a little clunky, but now we have egg-free recombinant vaccines that we can give to people who have egg allergies. 
The recommendations on people who have egg allergies have been modified. Most people, as long as they don't have anaphylaxis to eggs, could take an egg-based uh, egg vaccine. Um, and so, and then we also have high dose for our elderly patients because unfortunately, uh, flu vaccine, uh, the old one just didn't work as well in older patients, which is really where we want it to work the best because they're the ones at highest risk for hospitalization and death due to influenza. And so this just provides more antigen. So you're basically providing both protein for the immune system to react to and remember, and you get a better immune response. And so anybody over 65 is recommended to have that high dose flu vaccine. Awesome. And Alice, uh, immunizing kids helps protect us adults, right? As Trevor was alluding to okay. for pneumococcus. The and reason to vaccinate kids is to protect kids and protecting adults is nice. Okay, so children get Prevnar, they get pneumococcal vaccine because that is to protect against the serotypes most associated with invasive pneumococcal disease in children. And that includes meningitis or brain infections, pneumonia and bacteremia. One of the most common uh, causes of bacteremia in children is streptococcus pneumoniae. So they actually had the vaccine first, that was the conjugate. And the reason is the pneumococcal vaccine, that uh, polysaccharide vaccine uh, is a type of antigen that children do not make good immune responses to until they are over two years old. That is part of the developmental milestones of the immune system, right? I'm a pediatrician, so we're all about milestones. Well, it, <laughs> your immune system has a bunch of milestones. And one of the biggies is being able to respond to polysaccharide antigens. So that vaccine we couldn't use in under two-year-olds, but we see tons of those severe diseases due to pneumococcus in babies younger than two. And so that was actually developed as a vaccine for small children so that they, by, by taking that um, and attaching it to the conjugate, right? And attaching it to something else, it changed the way your immune system can see it so that Small children could make a response to it, and it was safe and effective, starting with doses at two months old. The original one was uh, included seven serotypes that were chosen. Now, this is going to show regional bias. So it was actually chosen mostly for the invasive serotypes in North America. So when these vaccines got moved to elsewhere, um, it was not necessarily such a good match, but we did see um, other serotypes becoming uh, either more important or more prominent um, as we uh, vaccinated with the seven. So children then went to a 13 product. So, uh, you know, they're just adding more basically to get to 15 and 20. Uh, but we um, have been using the 13 for several years. My middle child, I could probably figure it out based on the age of my children. So maybe 10 years ago, we went to the 13. Um, and that um, has further decreased the amount. But what we did see was that parents, grandparents, right, other people in the community were having less of these. Another nice side effect that we had with that, because um, it was not designed to prevent earaches, okay? It was not a vaccine designed to get rid of otitis media. However, we did see a decrease in that. And we saw um, 
you know, a little bit more favorable um, antibiotic profiles. So even though it wouldn't necessarily go that way, it did turn out that um, it was helping. Uh, and so that uh, children, when they were getting ear infections, you could use amoxicillin and it worked fine. So uh, that was also very helpful. And then we also noticed that, you know, older people were not getting as bad pneumonias with it either. So to me, that's a side effect, not a goal. <laughs> I figured that would get you so fired up. So that I was... <laughs> everyone's like, oh, well, you're just forcing children to get vaccinated for COVID to protect adults. I'm like, no, I want my children vaccinated against COVID to protect them from COVID. If it also helps grandma, that's great. But you know, <laughs> things that are top 10 killers of children, I think we should try and prevent and COVID is in that category. So uh, I think they need to be vaccinated for them, but it's also nice that it protects grownups and the community. That's lovely. I'm us big us adult docs figured that would get you going so it's all good we appreciate oh, your yeah. passion <laughs> but but i i just want to be clear like the reason pediatricians advocate vaccinating children is for the health of that child because yep. people say all the time oh you're just doing it to protect old people no <laughs> we, we're we're very child focused <laughs> and we want to prevent the diseases in children so one way is for sure, right? We advocate for vaccinating parents against pertussis or whooping cough, right? So and during pregnancy with every pregnancy and then also family members, so partners, right? Of the birthing parent um, and siblings of that child because uh, little babies not only get awful whooping cough but they can get pulmonary hypertension from it, right? So when you see deaths from Bordetella, it is in babies right? And they aren't old enough to start getting vaccinated till they're two months old. So what we actually do in that case is we advocate very strongly for vaccinating adults, including us pediatricians and pediatric nurses and daycare workers and people who work with small children. We very much advocate for vaccinating the grown-ups to prevent the child. Same with flu, right? If you're going to be around somebody, right? And a baby is kind of in that immunocompromised condition, right? So we advocate very strongly for vaccinating everybody in the family <laughs> because that does help protect that child. Because if you think about who small children are exposed to, it's most and foremost their family, whoever is in their household, and then if they go to daycare. But if you think about daycare, there's usually like five baby limit in a room. So they're not exposed to that many people in the community in general. Um, although if they have older siblings in school and daycare, they certainly <laughs> bring stuff into the house, right? So if you protect the house and vaccinate the grownups and the older, you know, other family members around those younger children, that definitely protects them. Those baby social lives, we got to watch out for them. That's right. Do so we're at an hour. Yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Well, Dr. Van, Alice, do you guys have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. So um, everyone's sick of talking about COVID, I know, but we have a new disease to talk about, right? Monkeypox. What are vaccination requirements for healthcare professionals for monkeypox? So at the moment, there's not a requirement. 
there is very, very limited stock and vaccines. So what they have released for the most part has been Genios or the inactive vaccine. Uh, and that is being prioritized for post-exposure prophylaxis. And I think you can tell us more about that one. <laughs> Yeah, it, so there's not a requirement, although some uh, groups have distributed vaccine to highest risk healthcare workers, people who are, say, working monkeypox clinics or providing vaccines. Um, but again, that's being directed by public health. And um, the limited amount of vaccine that we have is it being either for healthcare workers who've had high-risk post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, who need high, who need post-exposure prophylaxis after high-risk exposure, um, and then also some are distributing it to, and most of the health departments now are distributing it to high-risk patient groups. Um, because there are certain high-risk patient groups where if we can prevent disease transmission in that group to start out with, we can decrease the replication of disease, decrease the spread, and potentially get it to go away, although I don't know how if that's going to be successful. Uh, but that would be the idea is uh, before the disease spreads too far, we can deploy our vaccine to prevent spread of the disease and prevent a larger outbreak. Um, but right now we're not requiring vaccination of healthcare workers. There's not enough vaccine around, frankly, to even be able to start talking about that. Yeah, just so, when I think that we're gonna get some that we can use for PrEP, then we have to use more for post-exposure prophylaxis and it dwindles my supply. So I, I hear from public health department that, hey, we're getting so many doses in and I'm excited about it. And I think, yeah, we're gonna be able to do this. And then, you know, well, now we've got this this case and this case and this case and these exposures and everything else. And so it, it rapidly goes away. So unfortunately, I don't think the supply that's been released yet has been able to uh, help us with the pre-exposure prophylaxis that we would like. Yeah, so the problem with the ACAM 2000, of which we have some doses potentially available, is that it is replicating. So you have to worry about complications from a replicating vaccine, yep. which can include uh, worse problems in people with eczema, which is pretty common, <laughs> that you can have spreading of lesions, um, that they could spread it to someone else because it is replicating. So that is why the Genios or the inactive vaccine was preferred, but it's an inactive vaccine, so you need two doses. Uh, to really give a good response and you'll probably need boosting. I believe it's every three years is what's recommended. If you're regularly exposed, that's yeah, what's recommended. Yeah. Right, with ongoing exposure, right? Yep. Then you know yep. they might need a booster in the future because it's a non-replicating vaccine. Um, the high-risk groups also include people working in the laboratory who would be handling uh, specimens, uh, like lots of potential monkeypox specimens. So that is another group of people on that list. Mm -hmm. They've been on our list. The interesting thing that has been recommended with not the most data, I would say, is the splitting of the dose uh, five ways to get us additional doses by giving it in a different way. Uh, maybe you've done this, Trevor. I don't know if 
I don't know that we've done that. Yeah, we haven't done the intradermal dosing yet. As far as I know, it's only been done largely at one center. Um, and there's not a ton of data and there's concern because the reactogenicity is quite significantly more. And so it's a little harder to counsel people on kind of exactly what's going to happen because there's not a lot of information out about it. So currently the doses that are all being given locally are still all given subcutaneously with the 0.5 milliliter dose as opposed to intradermally with the 0.1 milliliter dose. So um, that change has not been made yet as far as I know locally. Yeah, right. So we have less data on that. So we have less safety data. If yep. you have a local reaction to it, does it mean you can't give it the other way? I don't know. Right. And how effective is it in PEP and PrEP? You know, we, I mean, how effective is any of this? Honestly, we, there's lots of questions about a, a lot of it to, to be completely honest, but it's, right. it's definitely interesting and evolving. And as cases double every seven or eight days, you know, we, it's, it's just a, it's a, Another thing that we didn't need on top of what we've been going through for the last two and a half years. Yep. Yeah, and I believe there's uh, a contraindication to getting COVID shots around the same time because of a concern for possible myocarditis. And if you think about who's the highest risk with COVID mRNA vaccines for myocarditis, it's males ages 12 to 29 and maybe a little bit older than that. Uh, and a lot of the exposed monkeypox patients are in that range. And so now you're going to be counseling someone around maybe getting their booster if they get approved for a booster in September or October, right? And then, you know, if they just had that, like what's the risk with the vaccines and which vaccine and how to give it. So that is absolutely a long discussion with your healthcare provider situation to do what's best for you. Right, unfortunately, without a huge amount of data to to help, so particularly for the for the uh, pox vaccine. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you guys for joining us. We have to ask one non-medical, complicated question. So, um, what's you guys' favorite medical show or movie? Grey's so Anatomy has person. been on in my house. Which one? Grey's Anatomy. My 13-year-old daughter has gotten on this Grey's Anatomy kick, so it's always on now. There's lots of seasons of that. You could probably oh, watch yeah. that for, oh, yeah. you know, that's a binge. That's like a summer long binge almost. It'll be on for a while. I think we're into <laughs> season five now. <laughs> so I'm the person who yells at the TV a lot if there's something medical happening. Like, I think the most, so I tend to avoid medical shows. Because I tend to mostly yell at them. <laughs> you know, I, like, I do that a little bit too. I have a hard I, time watching some of them. Oh, like in the first Doctor Strange where like he puts on his surgical gloves and then is doing stuff for a while and then puts on a mask. I, <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, there's a medic on set, right? Just like <laughs> lean over right. and ask them what you should do. I bet <laughs> they could tell you the way you should do this. Right. So I end up, I, I have a hard time watching things <laughs> that are medical. I don't watch a lot of medical shows either. I, although my daughter has started watching the X-Files, the old X-Files, which I'm like, mm -hmm. I remember watching this when I was in high school, like as a sophomore. She's like, dad, it's so freaky. I'm like, 
yeah, it was kind of freaky back then. But uh, I don't watch a lot of the TV shows. I think when I was younger, the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. Anyway. And, and that little monkey. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I the, will the say, Ebola monkey. Yep. So there are shows that I've seen five minutes of. I saw five minutes of House and I was pulling my hair out because they were like, oh, we checked serologies on all these babies in the NICU and they had antibodies to all these different things. And I'm like, yeah, because they get it across the placenta from mom. Like, <laughs> um, So even like in hypothetical, theoretical, non-existent babies, I was incensed that they were drying blood off kids uh. without understanding the first thing about immunology in babies. <laughs> but X-Files I just saw this brief little montage in the three minutes of that show I've ever seen where she went step by step extracting DNA and running it on a gel and transferring it to a blot with like no colored fluids and like it looked like all the right steps in the right order and I was like oh my god it's a montage of how to actually do it. <laughs> I don't know Real who science. their advisor is, but I love them. Real science. It's like, yeah, it looked like real science. I was like, oh my God, only nerds like me will even get uh, Right? But it was beautiful. I was so impressed. So I want to love that show. Yes. Yeah. Because they actually bothered to do something scientifically correctly. Well, now Trevor's daughter can tell you how to stream it appropriately. That's she knows right. where it is. It's on. Right. I just started rewatching it as well. It's on Hulu. Yeah, I think it's on Prime also or something. Yeah. I don't know what we. She was watching on something. So. Well, thanks to you both for joining us. Yes. Yes. So vaccines, they're complicated, but they work. So get vaccinated, right? Yes, and you should go according to the very carefully thought through schedule that they are advised on and that is updated every year and is openly available you just look up you know immunization schedule and it has all the special situations like pregnancy or hiv or you know chronic kidney disease it has all sorts of data in there and um they really think hard about these things so it turns out acip meets for non-covid reasons and they work really hard going through all these different things. And so they've actually had a bunch of hearings this year that you can even look up and see all the slides from for the pneumococcal vaccines and vaccines we didn't even talk about. Uh, they do lots and lots of work all the time to make sure that things are as up-to-date and safe and effective as possible. So yay, ACIP. Awesome. This was such a great episode, you guys. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Very welcome. You can see if it's vaccines, I will just go off. So <laughs> I'm so grateful to people. I'm going to say it again. I am so grateful to people who get people vaccinated because you do more than I do. Awesome. Rick, do you have anything else? I think I'm good. I, it was very, very informative. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having absolutely. Us. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation 
by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.